Here's a fun fact for you. There are, on average, over 4,000 earthquakes in Canada each year. Okay, now we only feel maybe about 50 of those, but still, 4,000. And many of those earthquakes occur in Western Canada along the Pacific coast. But did you know Ontario, Quebec, and even the Atlantic provinces also see their fair share of seismic events? On this episode, we'll be speaking with a seismologist that has spent over 30 years studying earthquakes in Eastern Canada. What causes earthquakes? What's a typical day in the life of a seismologist? What exactly is a seismologist? Stay tuned, we're about to find out. Welcome to a new episode of Simply Science, the podcast that talks about the amazing scientific work that our experts at Natural Resources Canada are doing. My name is Joel Ull. And I'm Barb Justina. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Barb. Thanks for asking. Uh, well, did you know this is actually episode number 40 of our podcast? Is that amazing? That is truly amazing. Now, I don't think I was here for probably 30 of those episodes. So 30 of those you did on your own. And that is truly amazing. It's a, it's a, an, a great milestone. Yeah, well, I, honestly, the, the first 30 were really like a dry run, like practice until you, you know, <laughs> joined the team and actually made it what it is today. So thank you, Barb. You know, I think no. you brought it to the next level. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next 40 episodes. Oh, you are, you are far too kind. You're being far too kind. Um, I ride on your coattails for sure. But you know, like, the <laughs> well, that's what I tell people, but yeah, <laughs> the next 40 episodes, uh, we're only going to get better with age and with experience. Exactly. So today we're talking about earthquakes. So Barb, have you yourself ever been in an actual earthquake? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I've been in at least a few of them and maybe many more if, if most of them we don't even feel, but I've felt at least four of them. One, The first time I was working in Toronto in an edit suite just off the 401 highway and it just felt like a giant truck rolled by, um, but we barely noticed it. Um, but the largest earthquake I was in, it was in Japan, I was on the sixth floor of a, a hotel in Osaka and it was in the, you know, about 5 a.m. early in the morning. And I got an alert on my phone saying there was a 6.1 earthquake. And, and uh, you know, the curtains were swaying. The pictures were sort of, you know, shifting around on the wall. I looked at the alert and believe it or not, I put my phone down and I went back to sleep. So I must have been very tired. How about you? Well, if I was in your shoes, I probably would have gone back to sleep too, you know, because um, I'm a heavy sleeper. Um, for me, you know, maybe a, a few small ones. There was one that was more like a magnitude five about 10 years ago in Ottawa. And I was on the 10th floor of um, a 21 story building. And uh, like it, you could feel the vibrations and that was really cool. But Honestly, I just kind of stood there and took it all in and I just was amazed by all that. But I'm pretty sure that's not what you're supposed to do in the middle of an earthquake. So um, let's not mention that to our guest today. No, that's just between you and me. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, speaking of our guest, should we bring him on? Let's do it. Our guest today is Maurice Lamontagne, a longtime seismologist and someone who's really passionate about communicating science to the masses. And that's probably why we're such big fans of his here at Simply Science. Maurice, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. 
Welcome. You've appeared a few times on Simply Science, but for those who haven't had the pleasure of meeting you before, can you start by telling us a bit about the work you do? Certainly. I'm an earthquake seismologist, so I'm looking at earthquakes, uh, mainly those that occur in eastern Canada. Uh, eastern Canada is within a tectonic plate, so we don't expect uh, huge earthquakes. We don't expect magnitude 8 or 9, like you see uh, around the Pacific Rim, for example. But we do get earthquakes that can be significant. Uh, historically, we've had a magnitude 7.2 south of Newfoundland. We've had a history of uh, many magnitude sixes. Uh, so these, although they're smaller than what you see, say, in Japan or around the Pacific, they're still sizable and they can cause damage. So my duties were to locate earthquakes when they occurred. It was uh, trying to better understand why they occur, where they occur, and when an earthquake occurs. I was uh, going in the field to install portable seismographs to detect um, what we call aftershocks. So one thing that, that's always been um, kind of uh, interesting to me, and I don't quite understand, because I, I guess I wasn't paying um, enough attention in science class back in the day, but I understand that like on in the Ring of Fire, you have two tectonic plates, one shifting under the other, and that's what causes earthquakes. But in eastern Canada, where you're in the middle of a tectonic plate, how do earthquakes occur? Earthquakes... Um even in uh, in regions that we call interplate earthquakes, where uh, plates uh, meet, um, they always occur on a fault. Uh, a fault is uh, a fracture of the, the rocks, uh, and um, when an earthquake occurs, it's it's caused by a, a, a very fast movement, very abrupt movement along a fault, and the longer the uh, fault surface that gets reactivated during the earthquake, the larger the earthquake is. So for a magnitude 9, for example, like they had in Japan in 2011, we're talking about a fault length of about 550 kilometers. So it's just huge. In eastern Canada, we do have earth, uh, faults uh, that were created historically uh, many millions of years ago. And these fractures, uh, these faults, uh, when they're put under uh, under a stress um, inside the Earth's crust, sometimes they get reactivated. There's a, a movement along these faults, and that's an earthquake. But in a moderate earthquake, the fault length, uh, say of a magnitude six, is about 10 kilometers. So it's nothing compared with the big earthquakes that you see elsewhere around the ring of fire, for example. But here we do have fault, and some of them get reactivated from time to time. That's really very interesting. I don't think people always associate earthquakes with eastern Canada and the fact that they can and have caused damage there. So that's a really good point. And your work is focused there. Tell us a bit about that. Okay. Uh, sometimes uh, the field work is planned ahead. Uh, when we we know that earthquakes occur in some, uh, the majority of them occur in uh, predefined regions. Like year after year, you see the same regions um, with earthquakes. Uh, uh, like in Quebec, for example, there's three main regions. Uh, one of them is Charlevoix, near Quebec City. Another one is the Lower Saint Lawrence near uh, Bécomo, Cetil. 
And another one uh, would be what we call Western Quebec, the Laurentian, the Ottawa River Valley, and Eastern Ontario. In these regions, that's where most of the earthquakes occur. So we do add more seismographs uh, because when you add seismographs, you're able to tell a lot more about the earthquake focus, for example, the focal depths at which they occur, and also the fault movement. Um, when there's a moderate to large earthquake, then we expect aftershocks. And aftershocks are um, the, the represented uh, readjustment of the earth crust after you have a, a sizable earthquake. So when there's a moderate to large earthquake, we rush in the field, we install our instruments to be able to detect the earthquake focus and also to know more about the uh, the geological environment in which these earthquakes have occurred. I understand you also study earthquakes that occurred years ago, decades ago, maybe even centuries ago. How can studying these ancient earthquakes help us understand seismic activity today? Well, first of all, uh, we, we try to document these historical earthquakes in terms of their damage and also in terms of uh, where they, they occurred because the, um, the, what we call the seismic zoning. Seismic zoning is to determine the, the regions where earthquakes occur, uh, occur sorry, and also the impact of these earthquakes. And the, the seismic zoning is partly based on, the, uh, our, on our knowledge of these historical earthquakes and also on the current uh, detection of the smaller earthquakes, the smaller well, they, they could even be moderate from time to time, but the detection of the current earthquakes. So the history of earthquakes plus the detection of the current ones, that helps us define the regions that are more susceptible to earthquakes. And also we can refine our estimates of the ground motions uh, that could um, that could be um, triggered by these earthquakes. And that's included in the what we call the seismic provisions in the National Building Codes. So the building codes look at the uh, probability of having certain ground motions caused by earthquakes. And that's what we seismology, uh, seismologists can provide to, uh, to people who, who put together the, uh, the building codes. So you've done a lot of field work over the years you must have some really interesting stories. What are your most memorable fieldwork experiences? Well, right at the beginning of uh, my career in 1985, uh, uh, I was lucky enough to to go in the uh, in the uh, Mackenzie Mountains, uh, just north of uh, of uh, British Columbia in the Northwest Territories. And wow, what an introduction to the fieldwork! It was the landscape was incredible. It was a uh, Two very large earthquakes, 6.5 and 6.9, and uh, that was just incredible. And after that, I had the opportunity of doing other field work in uh, northern Quebec and um, also in various regions of eastern Canada. And um, every time I go in the field, uh, that reminds me why I became a geological engineer. It was because of the field work, the idea of going in the field and uh, being close to nature and trying to understand uh, uh, geological processes. Um, another memory I have is my 
very short stay uh, in Haiti after the large earthquake they had in 2010. And when I was there, it was mainly to talk to people about what earthquakes were and, and trying to uh, to give them good information about what happened and also what could happen in the, the weeks and months that, that followed that uh, magnitude 7 earthquake. So as, as someone who is, um, let's say, a champion of communicating science to the, to the masses, um, what are the challenges when it comes to communicating science when it comes to earthquakes? Well, I would say that in general, people are not that interested in geology uh, until there's an earthquake. And then when there's an earthquake, then people want to know. Uh, it's, uh, I think, in, in terms of... Uh, communicating to the public is probably the number one geological phenomenon that interests people because it uh, it always comes as a surprise we can still we we can't predict earthquakes so when the author everybody is surprised including ourselves as seismologists because it, it, it can be anytime uh, pretty much anywhere and uh, then people are willing to listen to explanations and uh, I must admit that throughout my career, I've had uh, some media exposure, uh, often on the radio right after the earthquake, explaining to people the size, the location. And also, I was always trying to include some information about how to react and what to do after an earthquake. And also, naturally, the possibility of aftershock. In having these conversations with the people in Haiti who experienced the earthquake, what kinds of stories did you hear? What did they tell you? I must admit that they, they, they were pretty much all in shock. It was, for myself, it was difficult because naturally it was, for most of them, a traumatic event. Some of them had lost uh, relatives uh, or neighbors. Some of them had uh, houses that were either damaged or completely uh, collapsed so it, it was uh, it was uh, a very moving experience and I did my best to uh, to talk about earthquakes um, in a way that would show compassion to what these people had gone through and right at the beginning I told them that although I had been in a magnitude six earthquake before what they had experienced was uh, was way above anything that I had experienced myself. And they were probably more aware of the impact of earthquakes than I, I was because I was reading about the impact, whereas in their case, they, they lived through uh, a devastating earthquake and they were still trying to cope with the aftermath. And most people were sleeping in the streets, for example, when I was there. This was almost... I think it was three or four weeks after the earthquake, and people were still traumatized. And I had to be very careful about how I would approach that. One of the um, the, the great or the, the the thing that I'm most proud of is that um, at some point the um, I was contacted by a local health clinic in Haiti. It was a it was from a Canadian organization, and they contacted me because they wanted more information about what could happen. And so what I did, I recycled something 
uh, and a series of question and answers I designed after the second earthquake of 1988, and I sent that to them. And uh, they were quite happy, and they distributed it at large. And um, But what that I, I didn't know is that they added my email address at the bottom. So at some point, I was receiving emails uh, almost on a daily basis. Uh, on a daily basis, and I, at, at some point I said, hey, how do you know that I even exist? <laughs> I was getting all these emails from Haiti, and uh, that's why they, they pointed me to that website that had all my questions and answers that people found uh, useful, I guess, plus my email address. So I was quite happy to send back some information and uh, also explain some of the, uh, the theory behind earthquakes because uh, people had access to information, but sometimes it was misinterpreted by, by people. Uh, it was not disinformation, but misinformation. Sometimes they, they didn't exactly understand the terms and so on. So I was doing my best to explain what it meant and actually what it, it could mean for the future of, uh, in terms of aftershocks. What an incredible story. Challenging as well. I would imagine coming from a scientific background, you're not always exposed to that side of things. Yes, but uh, to me, the, the real intro was uh, uh, was in 1988 when they had an earthquake near Chicoutimi, Quebec. And then uh, I was on site when the earthquake occurred because it was a, a foreshock two days prior. Oh. Uh, a foreshock, we don't know it's a foreshock. So, but it was a magnitude 4.7 in a zone where there was very little activity. In it. So we said, okay, let's go and let's install our instruments. We traveled by truck. It were only the two of us, and we installed our instruments. And bang, two days later, we had a magnitude 5.9, and it was on site when it occurred. And there was a power blackout for many people. People had felt the foreshock, and then they had this bigger one, and uh, there was a lot of anxiety in the population. So after speaking with people in the local health clinic, I, I, and they, they told me that the best approach is to give people uh, information, but also something they can do to reduce their vulnerability. Like it could be as simple as going and buying yeah, for example, a flashlight with fresh batteries so that if there's another power blackout, it would at least have some some lighting. It could be also like to buy a, a first aid kit in terms of getting injured. So just to get people active instead of just being passive, uh, because when you're passive, then you always think about the worst. Whereas when you're active, you say, okay, it could happen, but now I, I know I'm what to do, and I'm better prepared to, to face it. So when I went to Haiti, that's more or less the same approach I was using. Uh, but there, the, the main difficulty is the, the construction there, there, as you know. Um, they're, uh, they're not engineered structured and, uh, structures. Sorry. And when an earthquake occurs, um, actually the... the they, uh, they don't resist very well to the ground vibrations, unlike what we have in Eastern Canada. 
what you're saying about pre- preparedness is very important. I uh, was always under the assumption that what you should do in an earthquake is to stand in a doorway, but I recently found out that that's not the case, right? That's correct. In the old days, they used to say get in the uh, the door frame um, because in the very old earthquake, uh, when they were going in the field, this probably the only thing that was still standing, the door frames. But we know that in modern houses, the door frames are not more solid than the rest of the walls. In a sense. So now what they say is that if you're inside during an earthquake, then you get under a table or a sturdy desk. And the idea is to protect you from falling debris. Uh, and uh, you hang on to one of the legs. So it's the, uh, and that's one way of protecting yourself. The thing to avoid is start running, trying to escape the building because you can trip and fall, especially if it's at night and there's a power blackout. And also when you escape a building, there could be falling debris outside, like uh, it could be glass, it could be uh, masonry, like bricks and so on. So if you're inside, say stay inside, get under a desk, wait for the vibrations to stop. And if you're outside, you move away from building to... um, to protect yourself from the possibility of having this uh, these falling debris. So I guess we should all be prepared no matter where in Canada we live. Now, before we wrap up, I have one last question I want to ask. You say you experienced a magnitude 6 earthquake? Now, what was that like? When it occurred, uh, believe it or not, I was... Uh, in a happy hour with geology students. <laughs> when the vibration started, they started applauding. They were oh. happy to go through a geological event. Oh. Um, personally, I got under the table, so I, I do what I preach. <laughs> you go under the table. I was the only one doing that. Uh, uh, fortunately, it was not a place where uh, it was very threatening. It was a a fairly low building, the, the, there was uh, no glasses fell or anything. But when I looked outside, I could see uh, the, um, the the parked uh, cars and trucks. Uh, they were rocking <laughs> and they were going back and forth. So the vibrations were quite intense. And after that, we went in the field to see if our equipment had, uh, had uh, survived the vibrations. <laughs> But uh, immediately uh, the, the phone rang, and uh, back then we didn't have cell phones. But uh, I went to the geology professor at, uh, at Shikutimi, and immediately his phone rang, and I picked up the phone and I answered the questions of the uh, of the Radio Canada journalist in, in Shikutimi. And, uh, in retrospect, I should have stayed there and answered a lot more questions because. Right after that, there was a, there were many questions. People didn't know what to do, what it meant. To most journalists, it was something completely unexpected and unheard of. Um, but unfortunately, my uh, my colleague wanted in the field to check the equipment. Uh, but I think uh, I could have stayed a bit longer just to take on the, the questions from people. Indeed. It's impressive that your instincts kicked in and you did the right thing by getting underneath the table. Now, after hearing that story from you, I'm sure some of our listeners will want to learn more about seismology, and maybe you've even inspired someone to actually become a seismologist. 
What online resources would you recommend for people who are curious about earthquakes and the kind of research you do? Okay, the, the research, you, you can find a lot about the um, Canadian earthquakes if you go to earthquakescanada.ca and there you'll see uh, the list of the most recent earthquakes. You can also check our database of earthquakes. You'll see pictures of damage from Canadian earthquakes. Uh, and also it, it has links to uh, how to prepare. And uh, But uh, how to prepare, you can also visit the what is called the greatshakeout.org, where you find information about uh, what to do during an earthquake, but also before and after. And that's an incredibly important source of information. In Canada, we have a great shakeout exercise every October, and we're participating in a global exercise that's called the great shakeout. So if people are interested, in developing a reflex when an earthquake occurs, I think they should do the, the earthquake drill uh, that occurs every October. And by visiting the greatshakeout.org, they can register and be ready when the, the drill occurs next October. That's some very good advice. Uh, we'll make sure to add all those links to our podcast description. Marius, thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat with us today. That was my pleasure. Have a good day. Thank you for that fascinating conversation. It was so amazing to hear his experiences in the field as a seismologist. Just imagine being on the ground in Haiti after that devastating earthquake in 2010. I can't even imagine. He's enjoyed a really incredible career. Really? Yeah, it must have been really surreal in Haiti, that's for sure. One of the things, though, that Ed Marius mentioned uh, was the Earthquakes Canada website. Like, I can't recommend that site enough. There's so many cool things. There are actually reports on every significant earthquakes. There's maps of seismic events across the country. There's even this, like, this full list of frequently asked questions about every single topic related to earthquakes or seismology. So I really recommend people check it out. Mm-hmm. That is an amazing site for sure. Now, another thing NRCAN seismologists are busy working on is a nationwide earthquake early warning system. So one day, seismic sensors will detect activity and within seconds send out alerts so people can take cover. Kind of like the alert I got in Japan, but next time I'll know how to take cover, right? Yeah, but honestly, that was the earthquake's fault, right? I mean, oh. the earthquake should be more considerate and do it on a normal daytime. But anyways, that, the great thing about that system, though, is like every second counts, right? So the sooner we, we know that the earthquake is imminent, the, the more people can get to safety. And that's what's really important. So if anyone is interested in learning more about earthquakes and earthquake science and seismology, check out the links in the episode description. And that includes a link to Earthquakes Canada as well. You can also leave a review and share this episode if you want. And if you share over Twitter, make sure to tag us at NRCAN Science, or you can even tag us directly. I'm at Joel Science. And I'm at Simply Science B. That's the letter B. I might remind everyone that Simply Science also has a website and a YouTube channel, uh, which you should check out. We have in-depth articles of interest and videos that showcase the fascinating scientific work that we do at Natural Resources Canada. And you can find those links in the episode description as well, and also our social media channels. Thank you, Barb. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.